In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Dear Reverend Fathers, dear brothers and seminarians, dear faithful. In 1814, 205 years ago, Pope Pius VII journeyed from Fontainebleau in France back to Rome. And all along the way, he visited many of Our Lady's sanctuaries in various towns of Italy. In each one of them, he uh, had a ceremony where he crowned the statues of Our Lady. And in each of these towns, the people crowded the streets to see the Pope. Then he reached Rome on the 24th of May, where he was welcomed with great enthusiasm. And the reason for the great rejoicing was that the Pope had been imprisoned for five years by the Emperor Napoleon, and he was finally set free when Napoleon lost the Battle of Leipzig. And the Pope attributed his release to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and he had in fact promised God that he would institute a feast in honor of Our Lady if he would be restored to the Roman See. At that time, at the time of, of his return, um, as, as a commemoration of his own su uh, sufferings in the intercession of Our Lady, um, he extended the Feast of the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, the feast that falls on the 15th of September. He extended that feast to the Universal Church. But his sufferings were not over on that 24th of May because uh, Napoleon was not finished with his tyranny. He had just been exiled to the island of Elba, but then he secretly uh, left Elba, returned to the mainland, uh, returned to Paris, and then uh, began once more his struggle for power. And his, one of his generals, Murat, was about to march through the Papal States from Naples, and Pius VII had to flee again uh, from Rome. He wasn't in prison this time, but he fled to Savona, where he crowned the image of Our Lady of Mercy there um, on the 10th of May, 1815. But then, uh, of course, Napoleon was, was defeated after 100 days. Pius VII was again able to return to uh, Rome, and then on the 15th of September, 1815, in order to give thanks to God and Our Lady, he fulfilled his promise by instituting the feast of Our Lady Help of Christians. He instituted the feast for the Papal States, a local feast, and he decreed that it be celebrated on the 24th of May, the anniversary of his first return to Rome after that five years imprisonment. Let's just go back and consider the history of this conflict between the Pope and Napoleon, between the spiritual power and the secular power, and it will show us why the Pope's return deserved such a feast as the one we're celebrating. The conflict between Napoleon and Pius VII is definitely a terrible struggle it pitted an absolute bully, completely drunk with his own power and his own self-importance, against Barnaba Chiaramonti, this Italian vicar of Christ. And it was a titanic struggle between secularism and supernaturalism. Napoleon would just not allow anyone to stand against him or question his absolute power. He would not just rule the state, he would also rule the church. He would not just rule France. He would also rule Italy, Spain, Germany, Poland, and Russia. He would run wild over Christendom, breaking up institutions that had stood for centuries without any respect 
for the church. And if the church was anything for Napoleon, it was just a tool for him to aggrandize for himself even more power than he currently had. And so Napoleon was constantly trying to get Pius VII to side with him as a political ally. Of course, the Pope at the time was a temporal ruler. He had a nation which he governed as a monarch, the Papal States. But the Pope consistently refused. He wanted to keep the church, the church aloof from these political affairs. And in the end, Pius VII proved himself to be a match for this Emperor Napoleon in strength of will. His mother was a very pious woman, and when she became widowed, when uh, Pius VII was, was um, 23 years old, she decided to enter a Carmelite convent, and at that time she, she made a prophecy. She told her son that he was going to be elected pope, but also that he would have to suffer many great and terrible things. And of course, both of those prophecies came true to the letter. Because the Pope refused to approve Napoleon's outrageous demands for ruling the church, um, uh, in 1808, Napoleon had one of his generals enter Rome with 10,000 troops, this General Miolis. And this general tried to convince the Pope to become Napoleon's political ally, but the Pope refused. And so the general began to seize all the Pope's uh, channels of communication. This was the common strategy that Napoleon would use against Pius VII. If he won't let me be Pope, then I won't let him be Pope. I won't let him. I will try to um, reduce his ability to govern the universal church. So this General Miolis, he uh, seized the printing presses, the post offices. He expelled 21 cardinals from Rome, so, so the Pope wouldn't be able to, to confer with his cardinals and send them as emissaries for his, his uh, commands or his rulings for the church. But this did not stop Pius VII from denouncing Napoleon's tyranny. On the contrary, he openly condemned the religious indifferentism of Napoleon's government. The fact that Napoleon refused to acknowledge the divine rights of the Catholic Church. The fact that the Catholic Church is the only church, the only religion instituted by God, and therefore it has special rights and deserves special protection from the state. So the Pope forbade the faithful in his provinces, the provinces which had been seized by Napoleon, from taking an oath of allegiance to Napoleon. Napoleon responded by annexing the papal states to his empire. Well, I'll just take your, your territory. I'll just take your nation to myself. Then uh, Pope Pius VII responded by excommunicating Napoleon, placarding the bull around Rome and taking measures for the bull to be published elsewhere. And it was at that time that Napoleon, in July of 1809, decided that he would arrest the Pope and commence this period of five years wherein uh, Pius VII was a prisoner of Napoleon. He had him arrested at two in the morning, gave him two hours to prepare before he had the Pope taken to Savona. But this did not break the spirit of Pius VII 
Over the next five years, he would not yield to this diminutive French megalomaniac. He refused to appoint bishops in France as long as he was not allowed to communicate with his cardinals. This was a way of sort of freezing the activity of the church in France and preventing Napoleon from stepping in and ruling the church. You know that the Pope does this on occasions when he wants to uh, punish an area. He puts a, 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 a certain region on, under interdict where basically all the conferral of sacraments is shut down for a while. He was doing something similar here by refusing to appoint bishops in France. Um, and when he was in prison in Savona, he managed to communicate his commands to the church through one of his cardinals, unbeknownst to Napoleon. And at one point, um, Napoleon heard that two papal bulls had been issued uh, nullifying some Episcopal appointments that he himself had made, and he was absolutely furious. He didn't know how it was possible that these papal bulls were uh, appearing when, when the Pope was his prisoner. Uh, so he was, the Pope was getting these, these bulls out through one of his cardinals. And so Napoleon decided to increase the pressure on Pius VII, trying to force the Pope to give him power over Episcopal appointments. Uh, he increased the security around the Pope's prison cell, making sure that none of these papal bulls would get out anymore. Um, he even demanded the Pope's ring, the fisherman's ring, um, which Pius VII surrendered, but only after breaking the ring in two. Then Napoleon came up with another idea. He would just call a council of the, of the bishops of France, and, and get them, basically, to give him the power to, to name bishops. Um, he wanted to make the, the Pope his vassal for political advantage. This was the vision that Napoleon had. Here's what we'll do. I've, I've got a lot of power, but, you know, I don't have absolute, supreme, total power. Let's get more power. How are we going to do this? What we're going to do is we're going to have the center of the church be moved from Rome to Paris. And I'll prepare a pontifical palace for the Pope. He will live there, and I will tell him how to rule the church. He will do everything that I say. The Pope will be my, my vassal, my, my subject, and he will follow my commands. This is, this is what we're going to do. This is his, his grand plan. But it all starts with Napoleon uh, gaining power over the church in France. So he has this council of bishops. First round, the, the bishops voted against Napoleon, so he shut down the council and he imprisoned the strongest bishops, the bishops who were most vocal against him. Then he reconvoked the council shortly thereafter, and the bishops voted in favor of Napoleon, saying that, well, yeah, we will give you this power. But they pointed out that it was really the Pope who had to confirm. Uh, their decisions, that this was just a local council. So the Pope had to ratify what they decided, but of course Pius VII remained firm and refused. So Napoleon threatened to act on his own discretion if the Pope did not yield. And when this threat still did not move Pius VII, um, Napoleon sent the, the Pope uh, a violently angry letter because he had an incredible temper, Napoleon, um, 
he advised the Pope to abdicate. You need to step down. And he sent one of his ministers, Chabrol, to communicate his letter to the Pope um, and had the Pope read the letter. And Chabrol says to the Pope, look, it's really time you need to give up the tiara. You need to just hand over the tiara. And Pius VII said, never. So the struggle between the emperor and the pope continued this, we may say, strange battle between a tyrant who believed he had supreme power and in one of his prisoners. The strange uh, situation where you, you've got uh, an emperor who's trying to go to one of his prisoners and beg one of his prisoners to give him more power, to give him a power uh, that he still does not have. As much power as Napoleon had, he still didn't have enough in his own mind. And it was this man in white who would not give him that extra power. And Napoleon would stop at nothing. He made use of trickery, threats, and insults to try to get his way. But in the end, everything ended in failure. The Pope would not hand over to him the reins for governing the church. In the second half of 1812, Napoleon had his disastrous campaign in Russia. And then in 1813, he was fighting the combined Russian and Prussian troops in Germany. And he made the mistake of allowing certain delays, certain negotiations. His allies were pretty sick of, of his pride, of his tyranny. And they started to fall away one by one. And then he lost at Leipzig in October of 1813, and the armies allied against him moved to free the Pope from his imprisonment. They saw what uh, strength this Pope was in, in facing against this tyranny of Napoleon that was um, having such an effect on the whole European world. In March of 1814, they succeeded, and the Pope um, then slowly made his way back to Rome. This was his triumphal return to Rome after five years of imprisonment. This was when he crowned all those statues of Our Lady on the way back. This is when he was greeted with joy by the people who were witnessing the entire world being turned upside down, as they say, by Napoleon. But meanwhile, his enormous pride being firmly resisted by the Vicar of Christ. There was a contemporary at that time writing a letter to someone and she was commenting on the Pope's resistance to Napoleon and she said what a power is religion which gives strength to the weak when all that was strong has lost its strength all the mighty powers of the world were just buckling and falling for Napoleon but he could not make the vicar of Christ fall he could not make this this little man, we may say, um, crumble before all of his mighty power. We may think that Pius VII prayed long and often to Our Lady during the time of his captivity. As I say, he vowed to God that if he were restored to his see, he would institute a feast, a special feast in her honor. And he certainly attributed his release and his freedom and the freedom of the church to her. As I mentioned, 
um, after he had been back in Rome for a short time, Napoleon regained power for what was called the Hundred Days. The Pope fled to Savona and crowned the Statue of Our Lady of Mercy there. And it was after Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo and the Pope returned to Rome that he decided to institute this feast of Our Lady of Help of Christians on the 24th of May. So this feast day is firstly a feast celebrating the assistance that Our Lady gives to the cause of Catholicism. She is the help of Christians in that she promotes the Christian cause, which is the same as the cause of Holy Mother the Church. So when secularism tries to wipe out all trace of religion in society, that's the time when we need to pray to Our Lady help of Christians. And when political leaders refuse to recognize the rights of God and the Church, that's the time when we need to pray to Our Lady help of Christians. It was just a few years after uh, this return of, the, of Pius VII, after all this trauma in Europe, that Father Terry, one of the first missionary priests here in Australia, chose Our Lady Help of Christians as patroness of Australia. And then in 1844, at the first Australian bishops' meeting in Sydney, our Lady Help of Christians was confirmed as the patroness of Australia, the first nation to have Our Lady under that title as its patron. Cardinal Moran, in um, a speech he gave about Our Lady Help of Christians and, and the relationship between this feast and Australian Catholics, he pointed out how it seems that the faithful themselves wanted Our Lady Help of Christians to be their patroness because of the fact that they had suffered for a period of years, almost two decades, where they did not have any priests. There was a Catholic community here in Australia, uh, but they had no priests to minister to them from 1802 to 1819, precisely this period when all these things are going on in Europe. So Cardinal Moran pointed out how they relied heavily on Our Lady's help for the establishment of the institutional church in Australia. They were praying for priests and bishops to be sent to Australia to take care of the needs of the faithful here. And it was during that priestless period that the feast of Our Lady Help of Christians was instituted. And this fact provides us another reason for praying to Our Lady Help of Christians in our own times. If indeed it was she who provided priests for Australia after Catholics here were living without priests for almost two decades, then we certainly should pray to her that she provide us more priests and more religious. Because um, religion simply cannot survive without priests. Secularism cannot be defeated without priests. And while the, the, the political victories of, of conservatives, such as the one that was had uh, recently in the Australian national elections, while these are, are certainly very encouraging for us, yet um, the primary thing that we must hope for to defeat godlessness in society is not so much political activity as godly men who consecrate their lives to God in order to bring others to God. 
this is what we really want. We want more priests and more religious. We want Australia flooded with good priests, good brothers, good nuns, in order to bring people to the Catholic faith. And I think we can see from the history of this feast how wonderful it is for Australia to have Our Lady Help of Christians as its patron. Um, It's as if this feast were specially instituted to address the particular difficulties of our time where you have states usurping the rights of God and the rights of the church and where you have this drought, this terrible drought of priests and religious around the world where you have this oppressive and intolerant global liberalism that cannot stand religion and morality and fights so violently against it. It's as if you have secularist Napoleons running around everywhere today. So we have to imitate Pope Pius VII in our confidence in Our Lady, in in her power to defeat the powers of this world, which are as nothing for she who crushes the head of the devil himself. We have to imitate those first Australian Catholics in their confidence in Our Lady, in her power to supply them with priests in their spiritual needs. Our Lady's ability to help us and Our Lady's willingness to help us have certainly not changed in the past 200 years. And what we must make sure is that the confidence of Catholics in her has also not changed, that we go to Our Lady with that same confidence that she will help us for the needs of our own times, for the needs of 2019. So let us turn to her and implore her for the help that we need, especially for this help that we need in our godless times. The story that we've heard today um, about the institution of this feast is just another proof that no one has ever invoked her and has been left unaided. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.